0: From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, Professor William Keeler joins us to discuss the centennial of the Meuse-Argonne Offensive, the battle that led to an armistice in the Great War. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to The Public Morality. World War I, or the Great War, was a four-year conflict that was originally billed as the war to end all wars. Though subsequent history offers that claim oversold the scope of the conflict, it is not hyperbole to suggest it was the war that changed all wars. 100 years since the Meuse-Argonne offensive that led to an armistice. What is the impact today of the Great War? Joining me to discuss its impact is William Keeler. Professor Keeler is Professor Emeritus of International Relations and History at the Frederick S. Party School of Global Studies at Boston University. Professor William Keeler, welcome to the public morality.
1: Thank you for having me. Yeah.
0: Let's begin, if if you could, sir, by offering a, a, a distillation of the elements that led up to the Great War.
1: Well, uh, The war started, of course, in the summer of 1914. The United States was completely neutral in that, but uh, the United States is going to intervene in the war in April of 1917, largely, I think, for one reason, and that is that the Germans were attacking American shipping, uh, transatlantic shipping with their submarines, and uh, so Wilson... Uh, is going to go to Congress and ask for a declaration of war. There was another, I think, fairly minor uh, cause as well, and that is that uh, it was uncovered that the German government had uh, proposed to the government of Mexico that if the United States intervened in the war, that Mexico uh, declare war on the United States and, Obtain a number of states that have been taken from Mexico in the mid 19th century. That's the uh, that, that as I say is a minor part of it, but it's it, it had an influence mm-hmm.
0: now Part of this conversation. I, I want to frame it based on uh, you just referenced uh, Wilson declaring war in April 1917 uh, I want I want uh, to hearken on back to a quote uh, He's, when he said that he that the war was being waged, and in, in, in partly to make the world safe for democracy. Yes. Does that quote, in your view, have any bearing on Wilson's approach to the Great War?
1: Well, I think that Wilson, who was a liberal Democrat, uh, no question about that, uh, believed that uh, The war had begun largely because of the activities of non-democratic states, meaning Germany and Austria-Hungary in particular. And he believed that if, uh, if the United States and its allies could succeed in this war, that it would set the stage for universal democracy. In other words, he really had a much broader vision of the consequences of the war than just uh, one alliance, one and the other alliance lost. And that really becomes the basis of a whole philosophical movement that emerges uh, after the war in particular, but right up into our own day, the so-called democratic peace movement. And the argument here is that wars are caused by autocracies, that when the people have the right to choose their own form of government and elect their representatives, that they are inherently pacifist. And therefore, if you if you proliferate democracies throughout the world, you are going to uh, prevent war for all time. It seems ab- uh, absurd and naive today, but he genuinely believed it.
0: Well, that was... And we'll see change uh, because wasn't the United States at that time dominated more by an isolationist philosophy?
1: Uh, before the war, uh, certainly was. We didn't have any reason to get involved in it. Uh, and then when the submarine, German submarines start attacking our shipping, we get in. But Wilson tried to give the American participation a kind of moral Justification, not just they are attacked our ships and we're going to retaliate. And again, he's appealing not just to Americans, but I think to uh, the world that uh, this terrible war uh, didn't have to happen. And the reason that it happened, or a major reason, is that autocratic powers uh, were seeking to expand and therefore the democratic powers have got to uh, expand their influence, and that means that the United States is going to lead this movement to spread democracy.
0: What you just articulated, sir, sounds like a precursor to the Cold War.
1: Well, in one sense it was. Franklin Roosevelt, as you probably know, was uh, in the Wilson administration. He was Mm -hmm. assistant secretary of the Navy. And... Uh, I think at the end of World War II, uh, Roosevelt, before his death, uh, did hope that once this war is over and Nazism and fascism is defeated, that the result will be the spread of democracy, mainly in Europe but also in other parts of the world. So it is a a very uh, influential idea, and as I say, there are still people today Uh, particularly political scientists who argue the so-called democratic peace argument, and that is that you get rid of autocracy, you will uh, introduce a world of peace.
0: Was – you touched on it earlier about some of the reasons that we got into the war, but was there – in your view, a direct threat to the United States prior to their entry into the war in 1917?
1: Well, there, you might say that there was a, uh, an economic threat in that the United States was uh, dependent on transatlantic uh, trade for its economic well-being, and uh, the Germans are interfering with that. Uh, and therefore, there is an argument that the United, American economy was jeopardized or endangered by the policies of the German government. Having said that, however, I have to remind you that uh, at the beginning of the war, Great Britain imposed a blockade on Germany and uh, its allies, and that had a that effect on American trade because before the war, the United States was – actively involved in trade with imperial Germany. That's cut off by the British blockade. So you have two things here. You have the British blockade preventing American corporations from uh, from sell, selling their product to Germany, and you have uh, American corporations also now in da- uh, prevented from trading with Great Britain and France because of the German submarine campaign.
0: So would you would you say sir that the the, the tangible uh, elements or issues that you you raised while the United States uh, got in sort of provide the basis for this moral crusade that Wilson was willing to engage?
1: I think that any time a nation goes to war, particularly a democratic nation like ours, uh, you have to have some kind of set of principles or ideology that justifies the loss of life that any, every war uh, in, uh, involves. And in Wilson's case, it wasn't just national interest. It was a set of principles that he genuinely believed the United States should Fight for. I, we mentioned uh, the democratic peace uh, principle. There's also, by the way, his argument in favor of world disarmament. That is, uh, when this terrible war is over, the United States must take the lead in abolishing uh, weapons of destruction. He was very, very serious about that, and there was an effort after the end of the war at the peace conference to introduce the concept of, uh, of disarmament, of arms control, as we would call it today. It didn't succeed, but it was a part of it. The third principle that he uh, forcefully advocates is the principle of collective security. That is, this war, he believed, was uh, a result of these competitive alliances – the Triple Alliance and the Triple Entente and so forth uh, (coughs) in Europe, and he genuinely thought that once this war is over, we should get rid of this concept of alliances uh, and replace it with what he called the World Alliance, which is his famous League of Nations. That is, all the nations of the world join this organization or should join it and the result will be that if Nation A committed aggression against Nation B, that all of the members of the League would intervene uh, to protect Nation B or to make war against Nation Nation A if necessary. We know what happened to that, but it was a very strong um, belief that he had, and I might add, since we're coming up, Uh, chronologically that toward the end of World War II, Franklin Roosevelt revives that idea. The League of Nations had failed, but he uh, is very much in favor of the establishment of a United Nations organization whose job he believed would be to – was to uh, prevent war by – Establishing this whole principle of collective security that Wilson tried to put into place after the Great War.
0: If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Professor William Keeler, uh, who's Professor Emeritus of International Relations and History at Boston University. Uh, Professor Keeler, you now I'd like to talk about uh, some of the methodologies that President Wilson used to sell the war. And I'd like to begin by you telling us who was George Creel. And what was the role of the Committee on Public Information?
1: Okay. George Creel was a kind of muckraking, muckraking journalist before the war. And when uh, the United States intervened, Wilson taps him to serve basically as his public relations guy. The term propaganda, which, by the way, was perfectly legitimate in Europe, is a bad word in the United States, so we don't call it Propaganda, we call it information, and that <laughs> continues on for the 20th century as well. And Creole basically uh, organized uh, a very effective group of uh, publicists to promote the American cause, to promote the American war effort, not only in the United States, but also in, in Europe as well. So uh, it became a kind of uh, public relations venture for the purpose of generating public support for the American war effort.
0: Now, following that, uh, what were the Espionage and Sedition Acts?
1: Well, the Espionage Act was uh, signed or, uh, I should say, passed by Congress and signed by Wilson uh, just after the American intervention in the war, and uh, it was used basically, to put it bluntly, to suppress dissent in the United States. For example, Eugene Debs, who was the longtime presidential candidate of the American Socialist Party, was jailed under the Espionage Act because he criticized the war and was, uh, was penalized for that. The Espionage Act later on was used uh, to go against, uh, I'm trying to think of examples of this, Emma Goldman, the anarchist mm-hmm. uh, in the United States who was deported to Russia. It was used much more recently against Daniel Ellsberg, who... Uh, the Pentagon Papers. Pentagon Papers, exactly. Exactly. Uh, it was used against Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden, those two. Oh,
0: most recently, yes.
1: Yeah, so it's all—it's it, still in effect, and it has been used by governments to um, to deal with people that it regards as threats to the national security, hmm. and uh, uh, Wilson was very much in favor of that.
0: Well, you, met, you mentioned Eugene Debs, and uh, it's my understanding is that Debs was arrested for for being critical of the war, and to that extent, are, are we not talking about a paradoxical piece of legislation? Um, in that uh, it seems to be in tension with the First Amendment. I'm wondering how was that, how did that pass muster?
1: Well, it uh, it passed muster because I think in the in this during the war there was this anxiety, tremendous anxiety in the United States, and American society, about uh, the internal threat as well as the external threat. Reminds you that the largest uh, ethnic group in the United States at this time are the German Americans, and many of them speak the German language and have familial uh, connections to the old country. The second largest ethnic group in the United States at that time were the Irish-Americans. And for them, the enemy was not Germany. Germany had never done anything to, uh, to hurt the Irish. It's Great Britain. And so both of these groups might be considered to be potential uh, enemies of the, uh, of the country, and there were efforts to suppress them. Uh, German was abolished in a number of high schools of the language of German. The Metropolitan Opera stopped putting on uh, Wagner and other German... Uh,
0: uh, composers? D- huh? I said, German composers.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, there was this tremendous fear. I think it was a period of great fear that there are enemies externally, but also potentially internally. And Wilson was adamant uh, in his denunciation of what he called hyphenated Americans, meaning, um, um, and there's a large, I don't have the exact number, a large percentage of Americans who are are first generations uh, and have loyalties across the Atlantic and Europe. So, uh, again, it's hard for us to imagine this sense of tremendous fear and anxiety that uh, took hold in the United States during that period.
0: You, you mentioned fear. Uh, many of us uh, are familiar with the internment camps for Japanese Americans during yep. World War II, yep. but in, there were the first internment camps were, were erected for, as you just said, sir, these hyphenated Americans in the First World War.
1: That's right, yes. Uh, I've already indicated the measures taken against uh, German Americans, uh, and uh, it really was a, uh, as I said, to, to repeat myself, a sense of worry, anxiety, that uh, that the United States is threatened not only by the Central Powers, but also by potentially people within the country who. Uh, are suspected of not being one hundred percent Americans.
0: Uh, would it be fair, sir, uh, based on your, your your previous explanation, that United States, in effect, domestically, opened up a second front on 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 people it deemed to be a threat? So you have the a foreign war, and you also, to some degree, have a domestic war. But that, is that? Is that Overselling it? How would you phrase that, sir?
1: I would say that uh, there was a second front, the home front, as it was later called. (laughs) Uh, And uh, again, if you're fighting a war, you have to have national unity. You can't have groups that you suspect of being unpatriotic or uh, unsupportive of of the war effort. So yes, I think the Espionage Act and the Sedition Act of 1918, which involved a couple of amendments of the Espionage Act and so forth, were designed to make sure that people understood that they must uh, behave like loyal Americans, and if they start criticizing the war effort, then they're going to have to pay a penalty.
0: (laughs) You know, when 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 I'm listening to you and I can't help but think that I'm going back to the April 1917 speech when when Wilson says, um, you know, we're in this war to make the world safe for democracy. But in that quest, in a way, America curtails its own democracy. Is that that seems like a paradox? I just want to know. Am I understanding that correctly or would you frame it another way?
1: No, I think that's. Exactly to the point. That's an irony of Woodrow Wilson. On the one hand, he has this very highfalutin uh, rhetoric about democracy. No question about it. He's identified with that by all historians. But on the other hand, internally, uh, he's going to try to suppress democracy. He would never admit that but he's going to do it. I might Let me add one other thing about Woodrow Wilson, which I think many people don't realize, and that is that, yes, he believed in democracy, but he was a segregationist in terms of racial relations. He was born in Virginia and uh, sc- uh, schooled in the South, and uh, when he came to the White House in 1913... Uh, he actually presides over the resegregation of the American civil service, the, the, the Washington bureaucracy, as we would call it today. Before that time, since, uh, since Reconstruction, when the Republicans uh, were in power, uh, if you were a black person working in the Commerce Department or the Post Office Department, then you worked alongside your white colleague. Not anymore. After, after Wilson, uh, what happens is that they uh, segregate uh, the federal government. And I might add another indication of his racial views uh, was his decision to, uh, to uh, screen in the White House for his cabinet the, uh, uh, the film uh, Birth of a Nation, which was a celebration of the Ku Klux Klan, written by a f- former f- a friend of Woodrow Wilson's. Uh, D.B. Griffith. Wi- D.W. Griffith.
0: D.W. Griffith.
1: Yeah, well, he's he's the he's uh, the uh, the director of the film, but the long forgotten author of the book that the film was based on was a friend of Wilson's. So uh, I'm just wanting to say there are two paradoxes about Wilson are two ironies. One is, as you just have pointed out so well, the suppression of dissent at home, notwithstanding this emphasis on democratic liberties. And secondly, in terms of race relations, again, Wilson was a segregationist.
0: Well, and I actually was going to raise that, and I'm glad that was a perfect segue because when soldiers, when, when Negro soldiers returned, I mean, they, they, they fought with the hope that this would be a gateway to equal rights and democracy. That's right. When they returned, this is also coalesced around the Bolshevik revolution. And didn't Wilson fear that the most likely people to carry the Bolshevik uh, message would be returning Negro soldiers, wasn't, which sort of adds to a sort of violence uh, against Negroes as well?
1: Yeah, I would say that the experience of the African-American soldier in World War One was very – of course, as you know, the American army was racially segregated, rigidly racially segregated in both world wars. The first time that it is desegregated is when Harry Truman does it in 1948, and the Korean War is the first war where African-American and white soldiers are fighting – together on the same side. Uh, But uh, here's the situation with the returning African-American soldiers. When they were in France, of course, the major operations of the American army are in France. That's where the war's being fought. And imagine what it was like when you went on leave, you went to Paris. Uh, There was no racial segregation uh, in, in France. And you could uh, go to a cafe and uh, hang out with uh, white people and uh, also white women. And that was just enraging to many American, particularly from the South, American soldiers. So, And then when you come back to the United States and you have that memory of, uh, of, uh, of, of a desegregated uh, society, and you go back to the Jim Crow situation, you can imagine that there, that there was great uh, anger and resentment on their part. There's no indication, to my knowledge, that Wilson actually worried that the African Americans would be attracted to Bolshevism or communism. But he was uh, definitely anti-communist. Uh, he organizes... Or, I should say, as Attorney General, uh, organizes the, uh, the so called uh, Red Scare after World War I, 1919, 19, 19, 20, into 21. And uh, they're going after not, not African Americans, they're going after the fledgling, very small, insignificant American Communist Party that emerged. Uh, as a, as a result of the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia the,
0: uh, we're talking right now or right in the midst of uh, what would be the centennial of the Musagon offensive yeah. uh, which led to an armistice and then the Treaty of Versailles and by the time the Treaty of Versailles is agreed upon we have very few allies uh not really pleased with it. Can you, can you talk about the Treaty of Versailles and, and um, its role in a, in world history?
1: Oh, boy. I've, <laughs> I've written a lot about that. How do I summarize it quickly? Yeah. Uh, Treaty of Versailles was uh, an effort on the part of Wilson, who was one of the four, the big four in, at the peace conference, to uh, prevent another war. He really thought that he wanted to create a system that would make World War I the last war in American history. He genuinely believed that. What he found was that you know, the British and the French in particular, and to a lesser extent the Italians, all represented at the peace conference, were not interested in, uh, in relying on his new League of Nations to defend their security. Uh, Georges Clemenceau, the French prime minister in particular, just thought, this is ridiculous. We have to protect ourselves against Germany so they won't come at us again. And uh, the way to do that is by uh, signing alliances with like-minded countries. And this League of Nations, which is going to be set up in Geneva, is a, a pipe dream. He didn't say that to Wilson's face. But we know that he believed that. Uh, and the same with Lloyd George, the British prime minister. He just thought that the league was a fine idea, but uh, it's not going to defend uh, either Britain or France again if the Germans rearm and threaten Europe.
0: And not, I'm not defending either David Lloyd George or, or George Clemensall, but is there—I'm I'm, from your perspective, sir, is there a difference when the battle is fought in your land, and in as opposed to like the United States coming over to fight? Does that create a different perspective on how one might view these global, uh, these geopolitical matters?
1: Yes, and I would distinguish here very clearly between France and Great Britain, right. between Clemenceau and Lloyd George. Uh, France was occupied militarily by the Germans in the Northeastern sector of the country, their most industrialized sector, and the Germans just wiped out that entire area. So there's a tremendous sense of bitterness, not only on the part of the people that were refugees from that area, but also among the French people in general at the way that the Germans had behaved. Uh, Great Britain, had been relatively exempt from that. There were some blimps that went over and some Gotha bombers that dropped a few bombs uh, in Britain, but uh, not much. It wasn't very significant. The French had had faced the Germans uh, directly. And Clemenceau, by the way, was a politician back in 1871 when the Germans (laughs) defeated the French in the Franco-Prussian War. And so I do think that if you are a citizen of France in that period, you want to be absolutely ironclad certain that uh, measures are taken to protect your country against a second German invasion. The British, much less less convinced of that, and and during the 20s and 30s you're going to see that Britain and France have a divergence of opinion about how to deal with Germany. The British, much more willing to um, use a term that comes into operation in the 30s, (coughs) appease Germany and the French were.
0: Now, uh, I I take a risk here, sir, because I I know – that The Treaty of Versailles is is one of your areas of expertise. So, uh, these these are my words. So you you can you can harangue me. These are my words. But okay. I've I've always considered uh, the World Wars one and two to be one war with a really bad halftime show, being the Treaty of Versailles. And I, I just want to know how you saw that in general. <laughs> yeah.
1: uh, I think that uh, one of the myths of the Peace Conference of 1919 and the Treaty of Versailles is that it so dramatically and drastically mistreated Germany that it led directly to Hitler. Uh, that's a very popular argument that I've read, and I am completely opposed to that argument. The Treaty of Versailles uh, never really was put into effect. It it, it wasn't a failure. It never really was put into effect. Uh, Reparations, for example, the big issue about the Germans having to pay to repair the damage that their troops made uh, in uh, northeastern France and northern Italy and other places. Germany ended up paying no net reparations at all. This is the basis of a very important book by a colleague of mine who proves that, uh, in fact, what happened in the mid-1930s, excuse me, mid-1920s was that the Germans persuaded the Americans, not the government, but the American financial institutions to lend money to Germany, and they did. Uh, And they also persuaded the Uh. other countries to reduce their reparation demands of Germany, so that when Germany finally uh, defaults on its reparation payments in 19, officially in 1932, just before Hitler comes to power, uh, they also default on their commercial loans from J.P. Morgan and other American banks, and that means, again, according to research, that Germany did not pay reparations. If you will, America paid the reparations by these uh, bank loans. So that's number one on my agenda. Mm-hmm. It's not true that the rough treatment of Germany after World War I caused the rise of Hitler.
0: Um, uh, t- talk about uh, Wilson's political strategy to sell the treaty to the to, to the Senate for ratification.
1: Yeah, well, uh, it's complicated by the fact that Wilson was getting more and more ill uh, at the end of the peace conference, uh, and uh, he desperately tries to persuade the Senate to ratify, to advise and consent to the. Not only the Treaty of Versailles, but uh, the League of Nations Covenant by making a cross-country trip by railroad uh, to get the people to pressure their senators to vote for these treaties. And uh, in the midst of that trip, he has a, I guess, what would be referred to as a stroke, uh, and he's got to come back to Washington. And he is literally bedridden during the debate in the Senate about the Treaty of Versailles. Some people have argued that uh, the first woman president of the United States was Edith Bowling Wilson because she controlled what he what, what he read. She controlled who got to see him and so forth. Anyway, long story short is that he was in no shape to use his influence to uh, promote the cause of these peace treaties, uh, and so the treaties, both of them, go down the drain in, on Capitol Hill, as you know.
0: So, 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 from the perspective, from the from the politics, when you start with Wilson's speech on in April 1917, and the selling of the war. Uh, uh, the, the 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 committee on public information, the espionage and sedition acts, uh, the failure to um, for the United States to even participate in the League of Nations and be part of the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, what is the aftermath politically of World War One? For you know, how do we how do we look at that?
1: Well, I think it's fair to say that the major af- aftermath of the war was uh, that. United States does not want to get sucked into another war. There was a tremendous sort of revisionist uh, opinion that developed in the 1920s that we had been hornswoggled into getting into this war by uh, J.P. Morgan and the uh, Wall Street bankers uh, who had loaned to the British and the French and wanted to protect their loans, that we were uh, sucked into it. Uh, by uh, Democrats uh, who wanted to uh, increase their power and so forth. Uh, And uh, so this is the period of American isolationism, starting with when Warren Warren Harding is elected president in 1920 and 1921, and uh, he just does not want to get involved in Europe, in what's happening in Europe. And the same is true of his successors, Calvin Coolidge, his vice president, uh, and Herbert Hoover. Uh, they are, I guess you might even say before the term was invented, <laughs> America first people, uh, in that they did not want the United States to get entangled in European affairs that would uh, would lead to their being uh Again, sucked into another world
0: war. Well, how how, do, how does those politics play out when a number, of, as you you mentioned earlier, that a, that Wilson was viewed largely um, as a progressive, but para, paradoxically, a number of the people that were uh, incarcerated under the Espionage and Sedition Acts were also progressives. So they, so how does that play out? Because they don't really have any stomach to to support this type of interventionism as well. Is that would that be fair?
1: Uh, I would say that the people that were incarcerated, it's a very, very, very small percentage of the population. Uh, they're not going to have any effect, okay. whatever it might have been, on the, uh, on the political uh, system. But I think that there is also a belief in the United States in the 20s that the U.S. ought to concentrate on economic development, not economic expansion. This is the great, if you will, the sort of heyday of uh, American-style capitalism in the 20s. The stock market is just going through the roof. Businesses are making huge profits. uh, And it looks like uh, things are going very well for the United States not being connected to the League of Nations, not being in any way connected to the European situation. Uh, so, you know, it really does seem, temporarily, I would argue, that uh, that things are going ex- extremely well and the United States is doing just fine.
0: Would it be fair to say that while it, it was naive to, to assume that World War One would be the war to end all wars. It certainly was the war to, that changed all wars. Uh,
1: yes, in the sense that it demonstrated how lethal war could be. People were not alive who remembered the Napoleonic Wars, which was a very lethal uh, period in world history. Uh, and, and if you think of the average person in the United States before World War one, wars meant the Spanish-American War which was which was over practically before it was <laughs> started. and uh, the, the, the Indian Wars you might you might say, uh, the United States had a very small professional army before World War one. Uh, and wars were not they didn't play an important par- part in American, consciousness now but one exception to that was the American Civil War uh, and uh, the assumption was I think that uh, once that war was over that the United States is now unified it's not going to break it's not going to break into two and uh, so war is not something that is on, on the radar screen of Americans in the 1920s. And then we get into the 30s, of course, things begin to get difficult in Europe, and that's when this isolationism that I mentioned of the 1920s really comes into play, because as it seems possible and maybe even probable that the United States would eventually have to intervene in Europe to prevent Nazism, Hitler from taking over the continent, Uh, that isolationism rears its ugly head, and you get the Neutrality Acts of the 1930s, uh, and uh, President Roosevelt recognizes the danger, but there's nothing he can do about it, really, because Congress does not want to get involved.
0: Would that be, in your view, sir, the, the part of the lasting legacy of uh, World War One?
1: Yeah, I would say, if you put me on the spot and ask me, what is the lasting legacy? It is the fear of war, the fear of getting drawn into a war. And then we, of course, know that <coughs> we were drawn into a second world war, but that's because we were attacked. Uh, at Pearl Harbor Uh, it's interesting by the way when you speak of Pearl Harbor uh, when Roosevelt went to Congress and got a declaration of war the question was what about Germany Germany hadn't attacked the United States there was no direct conflict between the United States and Germany and some historians have speculated what if Germany did not bump up against the United States, would President Roosevelt have been able to persuade the American Congress to declare war on Germany? He didn't have to worry about that because Hitler himself, several days after Pearl Harbor, declared war on the United States as an ally of Japan. So the point I'm trying to make is that in terms of sheer national interest and national security, Germany was not a direct threat to the United States. It was a threat to Europe and to Britain and to other countries, but not to the United States. And uh, the United States ultimately, as you well know, becomes the leader of the coalition that defeats Nazi Germany.
0: Mm-hmm. I- ironically, uh, when when Germany declares war on the United States, that was one of the few, if only, treaty that uh, agreement that Hitler actually uh a- adhere to with with the, with the foreign power <laughs> that's right and I
1: think his reasoning who knows what was in his mind, but his reasoning is ah now the Americans are going to be distracted in the Pacific. they've got a war going on there, so they will not be able to uh, do much to help britain uh in in, in europe uh turned out to be wrong but in the short run at least there was this uh, this war in the Pacific that did distract from the war in, in, in Europe and yet in, in the long run of course the United States does get involved in the year, in the war in Europe
0: Professor William Keeler thank you for joining me today on the public morality that was William Keeler stay tuned for my closing remarks. And now for my closing remarks. Though I have no official vote, I wish to nominate Anna Maria Arquilla and Maria Gallagher as Time Magazine's Persons of the Year. In a year where Democratic norms have been challenged and its guardrails seemingly dismantled, Arquilla and Gallagher have given this Democratic Republic its latest seminal moment. These two women of valor cornered Arizona Republican... Senator Jeff Flake at the Senate elevator after he had announced that he was going to vote yes on moving Judge Brett Kavanaugh's nomination out of the Senate Judiciary Committee onto the Senate floor for a full debate. But at the Senate elevator, Aquila and Gallagher conducted an impromptu caucus moving the sexual assault discussion beyond the parameters of taking sides between the accuser, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, and Judge Kavanaugh to something visceral for millions of women and men to observe. The discomfort on Flake's face was palpable. He looked like a man who desperately wanted to close the elevator, but his conscience wouldn't permit it. If we could just take a step back freeing ourselves from the shackles of the outcome in the zero-sum game, deciding whether or not we agree with Archila and Gallagher based on how we felt about Dr. Ford or George Kavanaugh, we might be able to see that they have rendered the nation at large an invaluable service. If only momentarily they took us back to those great wells of democracy originally excavated by the founding fathers. When Gallagher said to Flake, as she fought back tears, don't look away from me, look at me and tell me it doesn't matter what happened to me. She was in effect saying the government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. Our public discourse offers more reasons to be cynical, nihilistic, and apathetic, but infused with passion, they give us a shiny example Of what could be. We should not judge their contribution based on whether we agree with Kavanaugh being confirmed. That would keep us on the well-worn partisan terrain. But we do need to be reminded that ordinary people can do extraordinary things in our democratic republic. And for this reason, Ana Maria Arquilla and Maria Gallagher are my candidates for Time Magazine's Persons of the Year. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archived broadcasts are located at soundcloud.com. Just search for Public Morality. You can also find us on iTunes. And my new book, Solitaire, is available on paperback and Kindle on Amazon. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.